0: Ahead of the next Milken Institute Global Conference in May, we look back at some of the issues that were top of mind at its last global gathering in October. BMO Global Asset Management CEO Christy Mitchum joined a 2021 Milken Institute Global Conference panel titled Asset Management, Repositioning for the Future, to discuss the future of remote work and diversity in the asset management industry. The panelists discussed what makes the environment so unprecedented from a market and ESG perspective. Please
2: welcome the panel on Asset Management, Repositioning for the Future, moderated by Bloomberg Markets anchor, Caroline Hyde.
3: Well, what a joy it is to be here in the flesh, surrounded by really thought leaders in the space, to be here at the Milken event and to be sort of tackling what might not be deemed perhaps actually that much of a critical issue for people who want to make money out of uncertainty. But let's introduce our wonderful panel today, because to my right, we do indeed have Gary Krupska. He is president, World Quant, 2000, of course, of World Quant. 2007 was when WorldQuant, of course, was founded. So we're going to go deep into the data, some 600 employees over there, and we're talking automation, we're talking AI. I'm pleased to say we've got next to my right, Carter Lyons, of course, chief business officer of Two Sigma as well. We've got to my left, we're Christy Mitchum, CEO, BMO, Global Asset Management, won $300 billion of assets under management there. Joanna Welsh is next to her, CRO, Chief Risk Officer of Citadel. And I might add a champion powerlifter, if you didn't know already. And Neil Wilson, Co-CEO, Co-Chief Investment Officer of EJF Capital. So we're talking alternative asset management, we're talking about what to do with data, we're talking about the impact of AI, but crucially also the impact of talent right now within this moment, and I've got a little bit of a competitive nature, as we all do, in the audience and on set. And my co-anchor, Remain, is currently interviewing on stage at the exact same moment. So we're going to make this far more fruitful, exciting, eye-opening, thought-provoking conversation. So then I know that all of us can rise to the occasion. So let's talk a little bit about what well, this competitive space that we're in at the moment, and indeed, whether or not we've seen anything like this at the moment. I spend my day in, day out, talking about on the precipice of global supply crisis, energy crisis, inflation upticking, you know, the sheer quantity of cash coming into the market. We've never seen anything like it, or have we? Is this, and I'll start with you, Joanna, an unprecedented moment?
4: So thanks for being here, everybody, and um, it's a pleasure to be here, my first conference. Look, in terms of Unprecedented, if you take it literally, without precedent, no. I mean, we have a precedent here in the US, you know, in terms of borrowing or stimulus, there's certainly precedent. Um, If we think about what's new or extra about um, the current period, I'd say a number of things. The scale of the borrowing, that is unprecedented. Um, The timing, so highly likely that it's coincident with a cyclical upswing. Um, highly likely that it's coincident with the initiation of a new commodity supercycle, um, and also the the, the context uh, yields starting from from all time lows, um, and I think you know we we'll probably get into some of the sort of social things today, but but another important one is the context of. Uh, an investing community for whom bonds have always been the things that protect your portfolio. They protect your investment, you know, equity investment. They're not the things, I'm a professional risk manager, they're not the things that are the danger in your portfolio, I think. So I think that's, that's you know, perhaps um, an inflection point now. And then, you know, a last couple of things I would say is um, a Fed that for the first time is starting to talk about things like being worried about the social inequalities, yeah. um... They also now, they truly believe that, that they've worked out the Phillips curve and it's flat. So there's, there's, there's a lot of ingredients in the mix, I think, that, that really are new. But look, I'm in risk and so what do you do about that? It's, it's, um, we're not here to just pontificate about these things. So um, I think if you think about the past, uh, you know, talk about inflation, five-year, five-year inflation, if I say to you, you know, do you think it's going to be a pre-2014 or a post-2014, now we can have a valuable discussion, yeah. we can make, you know, we can make a scenario about that, um, but if you talk about something else, for example, green energy and, and Germany likely being out of the coal business in a few years, uh, past you know, this prologue is very dangerous. You, you know, you'll get a very kind of wrong answer there
3: many of us trying to find the data with which to analyze, to to put scenarios, to fathom what we can look forward to, and and of course then make, you know, efficient market decisions off the back of it. Gary, you're you're a man who obsesses about the data, data junkie. Uh, What are you reading at the moment in terms of, is the data telling you we're at some inflection point across certain assets?
5: So, uh, thank you very much for having me here. Uh, you said my name well too, so it's great. Um, but data, uh, data junkie, data fuel, um, you know, data—something that you know we, we thrive on. We just heard, you know, probably eleven different you know ideas and things that are shaping what's going on in the world today. And as we think about it, you know, there's this consumption. We're all sitting here, we're jockeying around the you know the auditoriums around to try to get more and more data and information uh, to try to have a view on on you know what's going to happen next. And so I think where we sit. You know, there's so much uh, amount of data, whether it's regulatory filings or corporate filings or brokers uh, distributing a lot of information, you have alternative data that's out there. And so trying to synthesize that and come up with a view and, and information is something that we try to do and you very much diversify what we, um, the amount of bets we make, um, which is critically important, because um, there's not just one nugget, but millions and millions of nuggets of information that are here and out there in the world. Uh, and then I think the other key thing is when we look at this, all this data is the ability to adapt. And you know, one of your first, your first question was around that adaptability and, and what you can do with data. And, and being investor or practitioners is something that's critical to success in terms of navigating. Um, so with that.
3: Jared, are we... Are we seeing the the right opportunities to set yourself apart, to make alpha at the moment? If we are on this juxtaposition, if we are seeing a wall of data that you can navigate, some nuances in the market that people have completely different views on as to whether inflation is transitory or not, let's not even debate what the word transitory means. But is this an area, is this the time to outperform when you're someone, like when, when you're two sigma and that's exactly what you're trying to demonstrate on the daily?
2: Sure, I think we would uh, be remiss to say there's no such thing as a time to not outperform, and we get paid to outperform. So you know, I think of what Joanna said was is, are the, is the situation we're in today without precedent. And, and my first instinct was, was, yes, it is unprecedented, because it's the, the summation of all those different things that she was mentioning. Have we had inflation before? Yes. Have we had social unrest? Yes. Have we had supply shocks? Yes. Have we had them all at the same time? Have we had them all at the same time with a pandemic? No. Uh, So when we look at that, and we're very similar to what Gary was talking about, we try to gather the data. So when I hear those things, I think of what data set can we use to incorporate that scenario into our decision making. And then it's adding different things up. It might be looking at 2014, it might be looking at the 80s, it might be looking at the 70s, it might be looking at different types of data. And when I hear something like transitory, I have no idea what that means. Um, I know there are 70 ships sitting outside (laughs) the LA and Long Beach ports right now. That's a scenario that we've never seen before. That's not going to be solved in weeks. It's going to be solved in months, maybe quarters.
3: Carter, how are you getting the data on, like, the amount of ships that are outside the port at the moment? Is it alternative data that is the the most ripe for this moment?
2: Well, I got that by reading Bloomberg this morning, so (laughs) it's not exactly fancy. But, I mean, there there are alternative data sets that will look at shipping traffic. They'll look at the Singapore ports, ports in China, and they'll look at how much traffic is actually pulling out of that. I'd say that those, you know, satellite imagery, that was fancy alternative data from yeah. maybe 10 or 15 years ago. A lot of that information is priced in very quickly now. It's not as differentiated as it once was. But it takes increasingly high or large investments in technology to be able to interpret that data. Because if everybody has it, well, mm-hmm. then it's not differentiated. And then it goes back to your original question to me. It's, it isn't a source of potential outperformance because it's already priced in. And, Our view is that information is being generated at far greater scale than it ever had. It's being priced in much more quickly, so it's harder to find those shorter-term opportunities because that information isn't as valid or relevant as long as it once was.
1: I just want to pick up maybe on on Carter's point, because I think it is such an interesting one. And it's so funny, because my mind went exactly the same place as yours. Like, maybe each singular theme that we're seeing in the marketplace isn't unique or unprecedented, but the combination of them is. And and I think a really great example of that is just really looking at employment data in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of the and. I mean, the labor force in the U.S. has obviously been shrinking for a long time, right? So if you were to look back and sort of uh, you know, chart labor force trends. I mean, the big thing that's been happening in the US is that men have been falling out of the workforce at unprecedented levels. So you know, the number of underemployed uh, men that could actively participate, if you go back to 1930, was about 2%. That was 6% in the 80s. It's now 11 and 12%. So that's been something we've been seeing actually since 2000. So what's the and? The and there is that now women are opting out of the workforce. And in fact, if you look at women's participation back to 2019, um, and you compare it to where it was the be- beginning of this year, it's fallen by 3%. And women's participation rate overall is the lowest that it's been in 30 years. So when you talk about, I think, precedence and what's unprecedented and how we kind of peel the onion as to what's transitory and what's structural, I think it is this and. Yes, and. Mm.
3: And Neil, you find the sweet spot around regulatory change within this. I mean, what's been so fascinating about this crisis has been the reaction function of the Fed becoming more nuanced. This isn't about just inflation anymore or interest rates. This is about the labor force. This is about inequality within the labor force. This is about trying to think about participation rates. And then now people worrying we're going to have a policy mistake because, well, they're looking more at getting people back into work rather than perhaps a running hot of inflation. When you look at From the regulatory perspective, are you looking more at what the administration might do about labor right now? Or is it more about what the Fed is?
6: Yeah, yeah, we look at investing through the regulatory lens, as you mentioned, Caroline. But I I think we are in unprecedented times. I think we are at sort of an inflection point. And why do I say that? Because when we look at the pandemic, it changed human behavior. Like we were talking, you know, uh, before we got on stage, how do you get people back to work? How are people, you know, 30 million online accounts were open in the first 12 months mm. of the pandemic. Behavior has changed. And so the government, you know, um, you know, and I always, I'm not the original person to say this, but it's certainly we're lucky we had the financial crisis, then the pandemic, because the government didn't know what to do. The Fed knew what to do. The Treasury knew what to do. They should be commended for their, their reaction. But you put six trillion dollars into the system, and you changed human behavior. So what does that mean? So we focus a lot on the banking system, which is kind of a macro player. This time, the banks were the transmission mechanism by which the government put money in the hands of borrowers, you know, to the public. They stayed home, COVID creates a fear, but it also created, you know, acceleration of trends, like like I said, like online brokerage accounts, banking. So what we see as a, as a fundamental change is if you're a bank, and let's say you've had it in your family, small bank for generations, you now know, you recognize that you're a horse and buggy you know, kind of business in a world where the iron horse is taking over. So what does that mean? That means you're consolidating, and because you can't afford, you can't hire people that Two Sigma can hire or, or WorldQuant. You can't get programmers to work for you. You don't have the budget to do it. You have to combine, and then you have to also figure out a way to find a way to... Uh, have solutions for enhancing your business. And that's going to be, you know, the the certain tech companies, fintech companies, and that's why you're seeing such an explosion in that space. And us, you know, for us as a business, that's why we've shifted so dramatically from the old horse and buggy banks, even though that's an important area of our business, you got to move into the fintech area because that's where the trends are, that's where the hockey puck's going.
3: Talking of tech, there is a QR code. It took a global pandemic for QR codes to suddenly become relevant, it feels, QR code behind us. Look at it, open the app that it takes you to and ask some questions because it is all about audience participation in this realm as well. So please do make your voices heard and get questions asked to this wonderful panel. And I'm I'm interested in sort of as we see this fintech revolution, you yourselves, I mean, your whole business has been about embracing technology, embracing the data, but also the talent within which to ensure that technology is used to the right kind of degree, and I'm interested as to whether you're seeing, Jana, for example, when you're looking from a risk perspective, how much that sudden wall of data and the use of automation AI, positive for your your job, negative?
4: So I I don't know whether um. People here are aware of the risk centre in Citadel, the, you know, the big wall we have. Um, if you're not going to the website, uh, Citadel's website, I think it will give you a nice little virtual tour. Um, but, you know, our multi-strategy fund, we have two businesses. I'm the CRO for both, but let's talk about the hedge fund. Um, you know, that's, that's five businesses. They're very different. Global fixed income, four equity businesses, a quant strategies business, credit, converts, commodities. And so, you know, how you bring all of those things into the tent, and, and that's always been something that's very important for me. I don't want to talk to an investor and say, this is the risk of our fund, oh, but it excludes risk arm, and you can't really include that, and commodities doesn't fit so well. So you know, how we sort of bring all of these things in has always been a very core part of, of, of what we do and the understanding of it. So I think you, you know, we combine a fundamental understanding of each of the businesses, but it's really important to pull them all together. Um, I would say one of the things, you know, talking about financial technology, um, since I started at Citadel, one of the things I've been very passionate about is actually moving away from vendors. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and really, I want risk software that is designed by us, for us, built by us. And, um, you know, I think there's, there's... But a big part of that is another decision we made during the pandemic, which is to be together... In the office at all times. Um, I listened to the CEO of Coinbase yesterday, and she spoke um, with such a singular sense of purpose about their remote model. Um, Christy, the same. Um, we, you know, for us, it was it was very different. Um, in 2008, I became a CRO for the first time. It was a true battlefield promotion. Uh, um, but it was very formative for me to kind of be in that room and watch people like Paul Tudor Jones and other senior PMs, listen to what they were saying and how they were reacting. This time around, I felt that a lot of my junior staff missed out on that, but the senior people of Citadel, we, um, um, you know, we decided to to be together um, and that cross, you know, that cross discussion, hey, what are you seeing in credit? What are you seeing in equities? You know, do you think there's a Minsky moment about to happen in bonds? Um, Explain commodities to everybody in the room. You know, we, we had all of our heads of businesses and that was very
3: transformational, I think, for us. Christy, I mean, you've spoken about this, this shift to some sort of flexibility, whether or not that's the right thing for each business or not, whether you're in-house. I mean, I'm very pleased that you all put on a tie, but I, I, I can't imagine the last time that you put on ties. We have shifted in the way in which we work, but certain businesses, of course, feel that they need to be within, to be next to each other. How have you felt at BMO?
1: Yeah, so I mean, you know, we were talking a little bit in the preamble to this conference that, that in some ways, if you kind of look at where, how people approached the pandemic, it was like either all in or all out of the office. And I think that was probably the easiest way to do it, right, so if everyone is out of the office, everyone is relying on remote means of communication, then you actually get that kind of coalescing and sharing of ideas. It just happens in a virtual format as opposed to being in the office. And you
3: found that efficient?
1: We found it efficient and we found it very effective. We had 100 people, 100% of people out of the office and, and managed money very effectively um, over the course of the transition period. But to me, that's not the hard question. The hard question is how to hybrid, mm-hmm. right? So when, when you begin to think about some people being in and some people being out, it raises all of these questions, right? And the word that I always think about is curating randomness. And and I thought so much about, about Joanna's comment there because at the end of the day, if I look back on my career and I think about maybe the most interesting things that I've done or the most penetrating ideas that we've been able to put forward... They didn't happen in the context of a formalized setting or meeting. They happened because you were reacting in the moment to a client problem or a client issue, or because you happened to have a sidebar conversation with someone that you might not usually talk to that sort of passed by your cubicle. So we're going to talk about diversity. We're going to talk about flexibility, I know, a little bit later in this panel. And I I do want to put a pen there because I think it is similarly important that we figure work-life integration issues out, and we use some of our experience in COVID to do that but I think our challenge here is gonna be, you know, how do we use technology? How do we use different ways of exploring how we work in the office to make hybrid uh, as effective as sort of the all-in or the all-out model? And by the way, I don't think we'll get it right the first time. Mm-hmm. I think it's gonna be an experimentation process where we try, fail, try, fail, try, fail. Um, so yeah, really important topic.
3: Carter, how have you found the era of the pandemic being a, a way that you've been able to think uniquely as a team within the stress tests of, of being at home or in? Have you found that things have changed now that perhaps you're coming into the office a little bit more or?
2: Uh, <clears throat> I think we, we're probably closer to, to Christie than, um, than to Citadel. So we, we sent everybody home and we kept them home for quite a long time. And, and I fully agree that we knew how to work together. We figured out quickly how to work apart but the hybrid model is gonna be the one that's gonna be more difficult. I think, a, we, we obviously weren't lucky that the pandemic happened, but we're lucky it happened in 2020 instead of 2018 or 2016, because the technology allowed mm-hmm. us to do things that we couldn't fathom. I used to say no to any video conference three or four years ago because it, it detracted from the experience. You know, it was choppy, you couldn't see anything, you look into a conference room full of people, you didn't know who was talking. Um, And I was actually at a conference not too dissimilar to this with the CTO of Zoom back in 2019. I was like, what's Zoom? I hadn't even heard of it at the time. (laughs) Boom, look at that.
3: Now we know it too well.
2: (laughs) And when the world did did melt down, I mean, not only could we have the technology tools to interact with people, we had enough bandwidth to be able to do it all at the same time. I had three kids on Zoom school, me in the other room trying to, to do things, and I think we found that our our quantitatively measured productivity stats went through the roof. And some of that was a bit of anxiety. We had nothing to do, so there wasn't an opportunity cost. But we're still seeing them quite high. So it actually hasn't gone down from 2020 to 2021, but we do know something's missing. I think it's it's the walking to and from the meeting where you catch somebody. Frankly, it's the exposure for younger people to more senior people just to help them as mentors. And that's the type of thing that we're yearning to get back to the office for. But I've gone back a, a few times. This is definitely the first time I've worn a tie in a year and a half. It's very uh, nice. This is probably the second time I've worn <laughs> socks, though. Um, <laughs> uh, but if, if I go back into the office and, you know, you, you take a little bit of risk, and we're all comfortable. We wouldn't be here if we weren't comfortable with that level of risk. But then if you're just going to get to your desk and log into a bunch of video calls anyway, then what's the point? Yeah. So there's, it's a bit of chicken and egg. And we do know that as the senior people go in, magically, the more junior people are going to start showing up. So we're trying to find that balance. Uh, But we're going to do an experiment for um, some time, and we're going to do what Two Sigma does. We're going to collect the data, see what works, Mm -hmm. try to measure the connectivity of people within the company, try to measure things like relationships. Very difficult to do, very subjective. But we'll do our best, and and we'll try to pivot to see and try to do things that work the best going forward.
3: Fascinating. Gary, I mean, of course, when you're focusing in on the data, was was your data collection stress tested in any way when people were working from home? Or indeed, have you been using you know, the ways in which you analyze the markets to analyze your own efficiency at work.
5: Yeah, so, so I'd say we had a, a little bit of an advantage <clears throat> in that we have 23 offices around the world. And so we, we've been connected since the firm started, you know, back in 2007. So I think we, we understood, you know, concepts of Zoom and how do we connect to our people. I would say, you know, we do that in a number of different ways, you know, a, a ton of surveys where we're listening to our people and how they're doing, whether it's an investment type issue that will you know, ask ask all of our employees about, or how their work-life balances, or whether they want to be at work. And so that connectivity, I think, was, was pretty, you know, has been very uh, useful for all of our people to feel engaged. I think the other thing that we really tried to do was build more and more transparency into what's going on at the company. So we continue to, to drive culture uh, around the firm. I think that was extremely important. Um, and I think... You know, pushing our, our managers around the globe of trying to innovate and just do different things, adapt. And so, you know, I, I think about, um, you know, somebody, uh, one of our general managers in India, he has Friday so he'll actually go around and interview a different person every Friday in the team. And just to share and, you know, what are your favorite movies? We just get to know the people that you would if you were working and going to a water cooler or out to lunch. But doing that so that the whole team can can appreciate, you know, what an interesting individual it is, and get that, you know, kind of quality of, of the culture of the firm. And so, you what's know, your think, favorite movie? What's my favorite movie? <laughs> it's got to be uh, Shushank Redemption. Very good. <laughs> but your favorite movie is what?
3: Oh, at the moment it's probably Frozen too. But <laughs> as a parent, a young kid, a rare, you know, a rare instance you got well, the sequel was
6: better than the original. Okay.
3: It definitely was. I'm glad you see me on that Neil. <laughs> what, I, I mean, missed the trilogy, unfortunately. Yeah, where's number three? Um, luckily, I can't sing along. Neil, your perspective of how you've thrived with cultural perspective.
6: Well, look, I think uh, the irony is that the people who need to come in the office the most are the young people. Because that, you know, it's going to Joanna's point, Christy's point. But I, I really, um, th- when you're looking at the younger generation, and I have a fair share of millennials, uh, children, they want to be more flexible. They want to be, you know, be able to be remote and not be chastised. They don't want to have to be at the 8.30 meeting. They want to work till 10 at night. They want that flexibility. So that's the irony that I see. And I, and I think from a culture standpoint, we were, much, we're much more on the Citadel, you know, spectrum in the sense that we've had People in most of the time, and we're in the state of Virginia a little bit more open, um, but we did you know you did mandatory testing and and I think uh, culturally I think we did hold it together, but it, it's been a challenge, and I think the hiring going forward that's the part you know I think uh, that's a
4: really good point i mean there's, there's the people you have in your walls now, nobody on this stage would, would say that that's it's necessary but not sufficient for your business to continue to grow and compete and so you know, this period, uh, 2020 and, and early 2021, uh, you know, I'll be honest, it was, it was a hiring boon for us. And, yeah. and I'd love to kind of, you know, talk to the CEOs of Morgan Stanley and, and Goldman Sachs and say, I can tell you what some of your people were doing. They were taking Zoom meetings for an interview with <laughs> with a lot of the people on this stage. But, um, um, <laughs> so from that perspective, it was great. But, uh, but 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 you know, I, I think one thing I noticed, um, I interview everyone who comes into my department, no matter how junior, senior, what they do. Um, you, you know, the, these, if, if that's the sort of hiring blueprint going forward, it, sometimes it was a bit transactional, you know, because it, it didn't cost people much to go to these interviews. Sometimes it kind of felt like being on a, you know, um, like a date where you didn't care whether it worked out or not. It was very, you had to be, very just, you know, you had to kind of have your own radar about whether somebody was very motivated to move. When you're trying to get people to move, you know, how do you overcome the um, personal connections they have to the place where they are, to come to your place, you know, where you're just a face on a screen maybe. So I don't know if if, if anyone, you, how your hiring went through all of this and whether you think that's the model going forward.
6: Can I, can I say one thing? I'm sorry, Carter. It, it, so the other issue is that you learn that your, a, lot of, a lot of your workforce um, live alone. This was, you know, disastrous. And, and, it, and then you create these, you know, artificial hierarchies. Like, well, it's easy to have the accounting team stay home so you can have more social distancing, but the portfolio team has to be collaborative and has to be in the same room. And I, and I think those are challenges. Those are things you have to break down because you don't want to be, you know, in the wrong department. You feel you're not connected to, you know, you'd be surprised. People who are in accounting or... In, in other parts of the firm, administrative, they want to know the direction of the firm. They want to know what you're investing, and in. they actually want, they, they care. They have a stake in your business, and so these are challenges that I think we're going to all have to deal with uh, on the panel. Sorry to interrupt, Carter.
2: I was going to say, you're describing culture, and it's one of the things that's challenging is bringing culture to life when you're in a remote environment. You can try to do some, you know, video things in the, the, the Friday Fryum. That sounded scarier than it is, but... That doesn't bring to life when you're in the office. It wasn't frozen, too, but okay. (laughs) I don't know. But I I, I I think just quickly, the the barrier to exit has never been lower. So it's easy to take an interview. You don't have to actually go to your manager and say, I have a doctor's appointment Mm -hmm. or I have to play sick. (laughs) I mean, I even think when I'm old enough that you used to have to call in sick to work, and then people would email. Now you're dating yourself, Carter. Well, the the gray hair (laughs) dates me more, but... Now you just like, you just set it up in your day and you just mark it off and you switch you know, maybe from your work machine to your personal machine. And then even if you're, you are resigning, it's a lot easier to do over a video call than having the, that uncomfortable feeling of going. So I do think it's become more transactional and I do think we have to take that into consideration when we think about what are we offering the employees that we have to retain them and what are we offering the employees that we need to attract them. And that's definitely going to be different going forward.
1: And I guess that's where maybe I would step in and say that, you know, I was really fascinated to see over the course of the pandemic how much our employee engagement scores went up rather than down, and, How are you you measuring that? Well, we would do frequent surveys uh, of our employees just to gauge them on a number, uh, you know, a range of statistics, and we would be able to compare it to employee surveys that we've done in the past, and then, of course, to the immediately preceding survey, and we saw really consistently high levels of employee engagement. And I think the reason for that, and I think it is really important. I think it's because the pandemic, to me, um, really gave life to a new way to lead. Um, and you know, I don't know what the right word for it is. You know I call it people-centred leadership, mm-hmm. because I think before, you know the office was this great homogenizer. Everybody sort of came in, and they had the same computer and the same desk setup and the same cubicle. And then all you have to do is just look at the backgrounds between, you know, behind people's Zooms, you know, see the interference that happens with some people and not others, doorbells, dogs, babies, like, and it forces you to this, to this realization that managing your people is not managing a corpus, it's managing a set of individuals. It's seeing them as a whole person. And I think the pandemic really forced us to do that. It forced us to recognize that there is no shorthand for connecting interpersonally with your people, for understanding their whole context and, and managing within that. And so the biggest risk that I see as we think about retention at BMO is that we take that shorthand again, you know, that as people come back to the office, we, we lose the power of that individual connection because it does take time. Um, and I think it is truly distinctive from, from what we did in the past. Well, Gary,
3: you were mentioning, you know, with 23 locations, you're already pretty Savvy when it came to having a culture across borders. There's an audience question saying, you know, from a large, maybe the Coinbase's and some other companies that have gone fully remote, they might abide to this that the hybrid model is a waste of resources, says this particular person. Are there not other ways companies can maintain their culture? So when you are thinking, was there a reason why you haven't decided to just go fully remote? What was it that you needed to have in the location? And what, what is it when people are, when I mean, you want to hire talent in? In Texas or in a different location, perhaps New York and some of the other main hubs, how do you make sure that they are as involved as others who are in the office? Yes, yeah, so I, th- I think
5: there's a couple of things. One, um, and I think people touched on a lot of great great topics here. Um, one is, you know, enculturating people, um, transparency of how the firm's doing. You mentioned the accounting folks or the legal folks, and, and making sure they're part of that. Um, you know, I think uh, Igor, our CEO, has, has said it many times, and, and rightfully so, is that intelligence is distributed evenly around the world, but opportunity is not. And so being able to provide people those opportunities, now that being said, there's a balance. There's a very careful, careful balance of you know, what people want. Do they want to come into the office? Do they want to be part of a team environment and, you know, and go to lunch with someone? And I think we've, we've really tried to listen uh, to our people. And, you know, through a lot of surveys, um, you know, we, we, we want to listen, we, we get frequent updates from our people about, you know, what they're thinking, obviously abiding by proper regulations. But, you know, we want to give people the opportunity to come in and spend time with their fellow employees, um, which I think is, you know, is, is the right way to manage this situation, which is... You know, there's, there's talented people all over, providing them an opportunity to be successful, and if they do want to come in, um, you know, be able to have the, uh, you know, the area to do that. So that's why, you know, we've, we've got 23 offices, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, try to create an environment where we're really listening to our people as opposed to forcing them and saying, you're coming in three days a week, no matter what, you know, we're, um, you know, we're really trying to provide that flexibility.
3: I mean, all of this, of course, comes to the, the fight for talent, the retention of talent. And after, what, the best decade for hedge funds, well, the best year for hedge funds in a decade, I'm pretty sure it's fierce, as you're saying. You, you know exactly what Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley Bankers are doing. They're on the, on the Zoom to you to a large extent, Joanna. But what are, you, what are some of the extraordinary ways you're having to present to candidates to get them on board? Do you not have to do that? Or are you finding that you're having to offer more of the profits towards them when they come on as perhaps traders within you? Is, is it sort of becoming more awkward to get people on board?
4: Uh, no, um, I, I don't think so. I think it's always um, that. Look, everybody on this stage will 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 say the same, and they'll really live it. But but you know, we we want we want the best people, um, and the best people always have choices. And so you, you know, you're always used to dealing with people who are um, um, you, you know either their current place is going to want to retain them, or they'll have other options. Um, I think. You know, first and foremostly, we want to focus on generating fantastic risk-adjusted returns for our investors. And, you know, you know there's, there's nothing succeeds like success. It's, it's you know, it's, it's a trite thing to say. But it's true. People love being on a winning team. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you really have to understand how you win. Um, and, you know, in, in Citadel, it is a place of great learning agility. There's high expectations. Um, but there's a great, you know, meritocracy to the debate around investing, operational risk, what's the best way to run um, our enterprise bits of the firm, how our engineers um, are integrated with it, and, and, you know, and some of those moments, they um, will actually arise out of out of a silence. I've sat in many rooms, Ken, other people, and we're just sitting there in silence for five minutes, and no one really feels a particular need to fill that silence because we're thinking about something. And to us, that's a very natural way of, of, of how we work, um, to, you know, to, to be thoughtful and to be challenging. And that was just so um, awkward and alien for us when, when we were not together. And I think, you know, when I interview people, the first thing they say is, you're such a presence in, name a market. You know, you have such a reputation for um, trying to be best in class in a certain thing, and that's not just on the front office. So, um, no, I, I think that there's there's been, there has to be a pull. People have to feel that pull towards you as well as that push from wherever they are coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, our results and what we do and us being out there saying this is the career we're gonna offer you and we're gonna be there shepherding you through it in person, I think, you know, you know that's, that's proved a, bitty, you know, a, a a big pull for us.
3: Carter, to pull people in, though, to a large extent, we're seeing, you know, in, entire trader teams joining certain hedge funds and they're being offered, what, eight to 20% in terms of payouts. There, there are suddenly all these sort of pass-through fees to recoup some of the costs of getting on this winning team that you're gonna hire. Is that that good for the investor?
2: Um, We have a very different model. Uh, There are plenty of firms who use models like that and have been massively successful, both in the near term, short term last year, or over decades. Uh, We think that innovation comes through collaboration, so we want to incentivize people to work together. Mm -hmm. We don't want to have individual silos. Uh, And I I certainly agree with the points made that people want to join a winning team, But I think back to what Neil said about millennials, of what we found is that's a prerequisite, and I completely agree that the best people have uh, competing offers, and you you do have to present more than just the best compensation. people are asking what is the purpose of the company, what is the mission, what are the goals, how do you support things outside of just the the business objectives of the company in ways I certainly think exacerbated over what happened in 2020, uh, more so than perhaps when I was a Mm -hmm. 25-year-old considering different options. So it's not just about, hey, we'll pay you more, give you the best option. I think it's a highly competitive market, you can't pay less. Um, you'll probably end up with um, a weaker team. But it's not, it's just one piece of the puzzle to us. Um, So it's who you're going to work with, how you're going to collaborate, what types of problems you're being asked to solve, and then some of the bigger picture stuff about what what do my colleagues, what are they going to look like? How can I learn from them? And how can ultimately, how can the company reinvest in me as an individual to make me better?
3: Christy, what are my colleagues going to look like? You know, is there, is it reflective of me? Are there women? Are there people of color is their diversity that's something that everyone's had to confront now and ask themselves some soul-searching questions because this is a health crisis an economic crisis and then a social crisis how is Bimo thinking about that you were saying you've got thoughts on diversity and inclusion I know you're really passionate about it how have
1: you been able to you know walk the walk not just talk the talk yeah. So, you know, I would say first of all, you know, I think as you know, an asset management industry, we really need to ask ourselves some very tough questions about the representation of female and people and of people of color. Um, well, I haven't seen probably the most recent statistics, several years ago, Morningstar did a study, really, that was globally, and they looked at the number of PMs that were women, they looked at the number of analysts that were women specifically, and about 11% of named PMs were women, about 13% of analysts. If you look at the asset management, you know, general asset management industry generally, not just at, at obviously people who are, you know, practicing um, investments. Um, You find that only one in five, uh, you know, people in senior management um, is a woman, and it's the only area of financial services that has been retrogressive since 2017 in terms of its pipeline. So I I would say I think the thing that we've done at, at BMO, which I think is distinctive, is we've looked at the problem very holistically, like we don't look at just what's happening inside our organization. We actually look to take a much more macro and global perspective so it's not just how do we create people and, and get people to our, our, inside our organization, it's how do we support um, women and people of color as entrepreneurs? How do we ensure that they have access to the kind of capital that they need to actually grow and manage businesses? And it gets to that whole notion of authenticity, which I think Carter was really hitting on when he talked about purpose. You know, At the end of the day, I think people are looking for you to say what you stand for, but they're also looking for you to kind of pass that test up and down your ranks. And so I, I think diversity is a critical element of that. The other thing that I would say is, I, I keep waiting for the tsunami here, and maybe I've just been in asset management too long and seen too little change. Um, but you know, I think we have to be considering what our social license to operate looks like into the future. I think we have to be considering who comes into our business and actually actively disrupts it. Because if you look at it statistically, we're just all wrong on diversity, and we're not making enough change Quickly enough, I think, to really secure the future of our industry, I think I think it's that that important. Well
3: said. I think Neil, what's interesting is this has become a moment where we're not your employee, your stakeholders. It's not just employees who want to know what you look like, what you stand for, what you invest in. It's the investors as well want to understand who they're investing in and also what they're investing in. And this sort of dovetails into this: the environmental, as well as the social, as well as the governance, and there is a fear out there at the moment that I use that sort of almost dirty phrase greenwashing. How how are you using data at the moment to be understanding that ESG is within your portfolio, and then it's true to actually what the data show?
6: If if I could just go back to what Chrissy said about diver, uh, you know diversity, and then I'll and then I'll answer your question if that's okay. I just um, so you, as a firm, like you have to in order to have change because, like for example, I think. The statistic is half the law students are now women, right? That's, that's a change from when I went to law school way back when. So change can happen and you have to believe it, but you have to also consciously take steps. So you know, we have a health room, we have a doctor on staff so that, that person can help navigate you to a specialist. We have a vacation policy, I believe, somewhere, but I have no idea what it is. We don't care. Like, so if you're, if you're um, a mother and you, want to, you, need, you just need a day, no, you don't have to explain it to anybody. You just That's the way it is. You can work virtually, and you can call in. So you have to, and we, we put women on all the boards. Uh, at least one woman is on every board of all of our products. So you have to lean in. You have to take steps. We can do better, um, and we, we do track how many women we have, how many people we have of color, and we pr- report it. We, we're fortunate we have, going now to the ESG question, um, you know, we have European clients. They demand it. And, and so you, you, need the, you need the investor base to demand it. You need um, your workers to demand it. And, and I think that's how change happens. So what we do um, in terms of ESG, uh, I, I think so we do two, two different things. One is we're invested in opportunity zones in the real estate side. And we, from our first fund to our second fund, we have put in, uh, we brought in consultants and we actually track the data very you know, very specifically and I think that's, and the government has to help there. The Biden administration has talked about requiring certain reporting metrics. Totally applaud that. That's how you get change. Um, the other thing we do is, we, you know, we, we advocate, you know, we're in Washington, D.C. Uh, we, we advocated, and we actually, and, and, and a lot of uh, credit goes to my partner, Manny Friedman, who's more expressive than I am uh, on, on many things, including this topic, but he, you know, we work, we work really hard with members of Congress um, including Maxine Waters, who deserves a lot of credit, um, to push in a, uh, a program in Treasury for minority depository institutions and community development financial institutions, CDFIs. And that is a, that's is a—that's how you get change. You know, you have a crisis. You know, I do well, it's Winston Churchill or Rahm Emanuel. It doesn't matter. You have to... You, you, it's hard in our system to... You need consensus. That's why it's... You know, that's how our government is set up. You need massive consensus or a crisis that that foments consensus. And that's what happened, so that's how you can finally get this kind of legislation in and create programs that can move things forward. But I think it's a combination of you know, your employees, the government, um, and investors. And investors, I think, particularly in Europe, I think have done a very good job pushing us to make change and pushing people like us to make change. Sorry for the long-winded answer.
3: No, it's not long-winded at all. Gary, I think this is something that you've thought deeply about is you know, who you're investing in, how you're investing, it's at the very first question that people are asking right now.
5: Yeah, I think yeah. In terms of you know ESG and even even broadly, I think the um, you know ESG has been has been a you know a readily topic for the last bunch of years. I think one of the great things that was touched on is is the disclosure of more and more data. Companies are being forced or being told that there needs to be more and more transparency into how their business practices are. Um, what their environmental footprint, you know, what type of emissions that they're doing, and I think that will be, you know, for, for a group like us, and, and potentially for, for folks like Carter, I mean, is, is a great um, thing at our back, so, so we don't have to go in and get the gory details and speak to every single company, but rather there's more and more legislation going on of what pieces of data are important and informative, and that you know, feeds into the, the various ways that we can analyze that information and, and kind of comply with any E, S, or G or really find signals of what's not necessarily reflect, reflected in prices. And so I think that's a, a phenomenal trend. Again, Europe has certainly started. You're seeing a lot of this in, in Asia. Um, you know, people adopting more of these principles. And so I think uh, you know, that, that is a trend that's here. Um, and I think there's just a vast amount of, you know with that data, to be able to create different ways of, of trying to extract value um, out of the market. So I think it's a phenomenal trend. That is, um, you know, certainly here to stay. Um, the other thing I, w- I just wanted to point out in terms of, um, you know, the, the fight for talent that, that we talked a little bit about. Um, you know, one of the things in, in bringing their authentic selves and educating people. You know, we have the good fortune of having, you know, a little over 700 quants that, you know, have roughly about 1,400 degrees, so they're used to being trained. <laughs> and I think, you know, as we train people on technical acumen and and you know, different AI or, or techniques. There's also training them on, you know, how do they adapt to a workforce? How do they think about bringing their whole selves to work? What are the proper things to say and not to say um, in terms of how they're interacting with people? And so I think, you know, investing in people's whole self—not just their technical acumen, but also, you know, what they bring to the table. How do they? How do they adapt? How do they react? What, what kind of things are are appropriate in a workplace and what's not? You know, I think, you know, trying to trying to you know, educate their whole selves is something that uh, we've spent some time on.
3: Bringing it back to talent, Joanna. Interestingly, at the start, you were saying, you know, you want to bring more software built in house. You want to be able to own that process, largely from a risk perspective, but just in general. And in another question from the audience saying, front office roles, but also back office traders, analysts. How much do you think will be automated in the next five to ten years? How how much talent do you think you need to bring into your four walls?
4: Um, on the risk side, I would say you know when I was a, a, a younger person in this job, and and when I you know first started leading teams, um, the production side, I you know producing a risk report, that that was a a it was a part of the job. In fact, it, for some people, and maybe you know in some banks, it is a job. I personally don't believe it is a job, um, and and so you know one of the things we've we've been doing is saying, look, I I actually want to spend less time on. Production. I want to, you know, for, for, in Citadel, um, from the risk perspective. But if I speak to my other colleagues, they 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 would they would concur. Um, we all want to build as much intellectual property as possible. That so that doesn't mean your whole process and your whole workflow and your whole understanding being you know, on some spreadsheet. That when that person walks, it kind of like walks with them, or like breaks the next day, which always seems to magically happen. Um, so so you know. Within Citadel, certainly within my team, we're all about building intellectual property and risk, and that means um, codifying that, enshrining our processes, culturally how we believe we should do risk, um, and, and putting that in workflows in our software. And I know the same thing happens with my colleagues in um, Treasury, in uh, you know how we manage the liquidity of the firm, uh, in how we think about operational risk. We are a, a pretty big hedge fund, and that's something we... We, we, you know, we do think about, um, but in our own way, how we think about uh, reputational risk, how we manage our prime broker relationships and optimize those for our counterparts as well as ours. So I, you know, having people who really understand, um, look, having, having engineers, software people, who um, um, you go to them, and you just say, oh, you know, you know, I wanna do this, and you give them no idea of your workflow yeah. you're not going to get a very good answer to your solution. So, you know, for us, um, my team is three groups of people. It's risk managers who are domain experts um, in markets. There are quants who will go away and, and solve, you, you know, I can't give my, one of my risk managers a two-month homework assignment on something. The, if it's something heavy quant, our quant people will do that research, and our engineers will work with them. So, so really, and I know that's exactly how it works in other bits of the firm, and, and so we, you know, we aim to create an entire
3: workflow. We've got about seven, eight minutes left, and it was always going to happen that someone's going to ask about crypto. And um, at Neil, you started by talking about fintech and the opportunities, their disruption, the regulation that you see. I mean, this, this question comes from attendee number seven. Can the panel comment on your view on the future of crypto markets and what extent your firm is exploring this burgeoning space? Are you exploring it given the regulatory, well, talk of regulation to a large extent? No,
6: no that's, a, that's a great question. So we, we kind of have a picks and shovels approach. Um, if people want to go mine gold, great. We'd love to uh, invest in, in companies that sell the picks and shovels. So what do I mean by that? In the bank context, it's banks as a service. And this is a, an emerging trend it's been, a, it's been a great theme for us, um, and I, I'm not going to name specific names, but the banks that, see, that are basically, they have a bank charter, but they are not really truly a bank. They're regulated. Uh, one in particular, or a couple in particular, focus on you know the blockchain you know, payments and blockchain trading, uh, so depositors can go to that bank and then trade very seamlessly on the cryptocurrency exchanges. The bank doesn't have to pay any interest for those dollars. 99.5 in one case percent, they pay no interest on deposits because the depositors there because they want the bank chartered institution to facilitate trading on the exchanges. Uh, online gaming, online gambling, those are all, there's banks that just focus on these very specific areas. They're not They're not putting out mortgages. They're not doing auto loans. They're focusing on specific emerging technologies, and crypto is is a big one. So that's you know, there's, there's some issues in asset management about custody crypto, and that ca- creates some issues, and I'm sure everyone has a view on the panel, but we find it's more important to just focus on picks and shovels and, and the convergence between the regulated world and the emerging, you know, uh, emerging areas and, and behaviors by, by, frankly, younger people and, and, and millennials in wanting to trade crypto, right? So just focus on how do you sell picks and shovels.
3: I think the easiest question is who on this panel hasn't yet had a conversation at Milken about crypto or been asked a question about it? It feels like we will forever be asked more and more questions <laughs> on this subject. What questions do you want to now have while you're here at Milken? What for you, Carter, is, is on your top of mind? What is worrying you or what is exciting you that you want to go out there and have a conversation, a cocktail over later this evening?
2: I think it's the, the beauty of milk is it all comes together, uh, and we're always encouraged as attendees here to go listen to panels or experts outside of your field and I went to a dinner on Sunday night and was blown away about how little I actually knew about what's going on, not just in the VC world but specifically in biotech and obviously the pandemic has brought that to the front of all of our minds and I do love coming here because immediately we might start thinking about, well how can I gather data on that? we might start thinking about how can we invest in those things but all of the, the social issues, building better diverse workforces, to me that's all about improving the outcomes that we're hired to do for our clients. Uh, and I just love having that collection of data through conversations. We're gathering data the old fashioned way here through conversation and I, I didn't realize how much I missed that until we started having it again. So when I think about cocktail hour tonight, I love coming here because it'll be an expert in policy, an expert in healthcare, you know, someone that we compete more directly against in the investment world all with different perspectives, and, and our view is that's how you're successful. It's creating a, a 360 degree view of all these different pieces of data that will inform the future prices of securities and how can we gather all that, put it in our process, and hopefully make good, solid predictions of the future.
3: So Gary, other than going and listening about the future of psychedelics, for example, what, what are you focusing in on? What, what are you passionate about or worried about?
5: Um, yeah, I was, I was a little bummed I missed that, uh, that talk <laughs> yesterday about the psychedelics, but uh, yeah, it would, have been, it would have been fun. But it was my first time, so I'm a newbie, I think, like yourself as well. Um, but, I, you know, there's just such a, a great buzz, um, big focus on, on diversity. I think the, um, you know, I went to a great panel yesterday with one of our own um, from WellQuant University and just where is education, you know, in, in terms of, you know, there was such a focus on, you know, we have an online uh, university that is a master's in financial engineering, and you know where is that relative to you know what schools are doing now? Even the gentleman from UCLA talked about well, maybe it shouldn't be a four-year program; it should be a three-year program, and just a lot of the flexibility of thinking about ROI of of education and and whether it can be done online in a maybe in a even more efficient way um, was certainly something that, that has piqued my interest. And in, you know, year the good old
1: British way.
3: Meanwhile, Chrissy, what are you thinking about tonight?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I I guess I would just echo this theme that, you know, I think one of the wonderful things about Milken Milken is that you couldn't possibly predict the conversation that you're going to have every dinner. So last night, I sat at dinner, and I had a woman filmmaker on one side and a philanthropist on the other, and it was just, you know, a fascinating conversation about so many things, and probably one of the most interesting things was, you know, how you could use documentaries to really, you know, I think, elicit a much deeper amount of emotion around climate change, just a fascinating conversation. But I guess if you ask me kind of where my personal passion is, um, I think it probably is not surprising, kind of given some of the commentary that I've made on this panel, which is, you know, I am extremely concerned about women in the workforce. I'm concerned that one in four women is considering opting out. I'm concerned that survey results show that over 50% of women are, are at least on the verge of having, you know, a mental health crisis because of the, the, the multiple pressures, which have fallen uniquely, I think, to, to women over the course of the pandemic. So I'm really hoping to continue those conversations. I think there are things that we need to explore. I think. All the solutions to be had? I'm sorry? Are there solutions to be had? Are you, Are you Well, I, those do. Conversations? I, I, I do. I do. You know, I think, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking about right now is, you know, what's the relief about, about for women? You know, do we need to consider some sort of sabbatical program for women to catch their breath? What would that look like? How would it not set them back? You know, they're just, you know, I think we have to be very creative about solutions, and I think we have to very much confront the fact that while COVID, I would say in our industry, dramatically increased our productivity, and I thought some of the stats that Carter shared were, were very powerful, um, that did not come without a cost. And we have to figure out how we repair, I think, the fabric um, of the work environment and the integration that, that women need to search out and find in terms of their work and life well, I, was, I
2: was
6: gonna say, so I have um, you know, five daughters, four of whom are working age, and they have each individually, separately, not together, pulled me aside and say, "Dad, you know, you have to realize, like, I have really nice, you know, people who I work for, but they'll say some things that are just really offensive to women, and and they just don't realize it. So my solution, to the extent I have one, and I think it's a challenge for folks like Gary and Carter and myself, is you have to give uh, your employees, like, have someone come into your office, close the door a woman, and, and say, you know, you know, how are you finding things here? No holds barred. Tell me exactly how you feel about things. And I think, because you have to educate, right? That's how you have change. And so hearing that from my daughters is, is an, you know, it's an epiphany, five, you know, four times over. But, but I, I think that doing that in the office is really, really important. And you, have to, you also have to strive to put people in leadership roles that, uh, that, are, that are women. And because they have a, you know, there, there's going to be a different conversation as a result.
3: You need women like Christine. you need women like Joanna, who has a leadership role as a female yeah. at Citadel, of course, and what are you gonna see, Kat, in terms of conversation tonight? What, what's bearing into your mind that you're worried about or, or seizing an opportunity on?
4: Um, I think, look, my, just by virtue of the people I've been around, I've been very familiar with the role of philanthropy and how that can really get things done in a very direct way um, I'll finish where I started, you know, very quickly. Uh, you know, I, I talked about the scale of this deficit. Um, and, you know, with, with, with the Biden government, like the huge role of the government in in, in this country, um, not least as, you know, they buy all the bonds. <laughs> They're thinking about some huge spending program. Um, I think, you know, interacting with, with some of the, sort of the government officials, I spoke to Chair Waters yesterday as well, you know, a couple of things, like, I really would love them to be to you know continue to educate themselves about about some of the you know you know the businesses, and our securities business being one, um, but but you know just generally this this sort of retail investing phenomenon. I think um, I hope that um, they spend this money wisely. I think they have like one shot to either leave an amazing legacy for. Future generations of of this country and other central banks around the world in the same position, or, or to leave like a huge burden that that people will never be able to get out from under, whether that's you know um, anybody paying taxes, whether it's uh, you know any young person, uh, man or woman, and so I think you know this um, having seen having seen the philanthropic side of it having some exposure to the, uh, the government and policy side of it and, and seeing how, you know, both of them can get to solutions. But, but I think the US is on a precipice of needing to, to really get this one right, and I hope they do.
3: So if you find any of these fine panellists tonight and you have some real thoughtful policymaking focus, whether it's policy, whether it's diversity, whether it's the coming together, a confluence of all, please seek them out. But for now, I think it's been such a joy to be almost a privilege, really, to be in the room, to have this, what felt like a very private conversation, but distributed to the masses with Neil, Joanna, Christy. Thank you so much, Carter and Gary. What a joy. Please do give it up for our panel.
0: Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative.